Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast, and today we're talking about mix review and mix notes. And I've actually got a special guest on the show today. He's a friend of mine, an engineer and producer. His name is Jordan McLeod. Jordan, how are you? Hey man, how's it going? I'm doing good. So Jordan and I have worked together on a lot of projects, and uh, this is something that we always tend to laugh about and have conversations about. Um, because when it comes to mix notes, there's, there's a lot of humor in mix notes. Um, and we've experienced all kinds of wacky things, uh, dealing with clients and how they tend to send us mix notes. What are your thoughts on mix notes, Jordan, and the mix review process? I don't know. I hate it. (laughs) Um, it's, we have to deal with it because it's necessary. That's, that's, it's almost the most important part of uh of recording um especially when uh either the the artist or the producer is hands on um they want something they come in with a with a with a vision of what they want their product to turn out to be right um and that's really where mixed notes comes into play a lot um because during the recording process you're kind of in a little bit of you know, the honeymoon phase sure. where you're just having so much fun and you're so in love with finally doing what you wanted to do. And so it's hard to, you know, do that thing. And then by the time it comes to mix notes, you've already heard it a bunch of times and you remember what you wanted to begin with. And artists sometimes, and producers do this too, they forget that during the recording process and they just have fun and they record. And then sure. comes the mixing process and they remember they're like, oh yeah, I actually wanted it to sound like this, and um, which is not a not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's annoying, but it's not always a bad thing, right? Um, so that's the first thing that comes to mind when I think of mix notes. Well, because you know, in a in a perfect world, we would record it as if like we're all on the same page. This is what it's going to sound like mixed, you know, right? In a perfect world, but obviously that doesn't always work out. Every now and then. Everybody is on the same page when when you come in to record. I mean, obviously that's ideal, and and you you record it, you get the tones, and then there's no surprises in the mix. It's all just simple, like oh, maybe turn the vocal up. But it can be really difficult when you record a song and it comes time for the mix, and they're like, well, we kind of wanted it to be a little more, you know, this or that, and you're like, oh, well, I'm not sure if I can get it to that or right. Maybe I can, but it's going to take a lot of, you know, sort of repair or modification. Well, and let's just be honest. The the need for mix notes is a modern thing, really. Sure. I mean, you can avoid mix notes by having enough money uh, to do it right the first time and the performance being great and the mixing engineer not having to do a lot because the recording engineer already did all of the work and got it exactly where the artist or producer wanted it um, or they got right. there together or it was just so easy because the producer or the artist had picked the right engineer that they knew was going to make the tones and sounds that they exactly wanted right. with the instruments that they brought or the instruments that that engineer had at his studio yeah. um, or they went to a specific studio that they knew they would get that sound that that is more often um, in popular music and music that has a, a bigger budget. That's what they do. Like when you hear of Foo Fighters wanting a specific sound, they go to the studio that got the sound that they want, you know, right. or 
Um, you hear that, you know, from Jack White, you hear that from the Kings of Leon, you hear that from Weezer, you hear that, you know, if they want a specific sound, yeah. they go to where the specific sound they wanted came from yeah. and they track it there and then they don't need mixed notes most of the time. And the producer doesn't mess around with it because they know that they're using the engineer and the studio and the mixing engineer that got the sound that they're looking for in the first place. As long as their performances are good, they might, you know, need to approve the mix or say like, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Let's just make sure those guitars are a little bit more present and let's go to mastering. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it's so obvious to everybody at that point. Yeah, exactly. Because they've done the work on the front end and like right. by the time it gets to the mixer, um, there's no question at all of like, what do I need no. to do to this? It's like, that's pretty much, you know what I mean? Like even some big name mixers have said, sometimes my job is just to beat the rough. Yeah. Because like it's recorded so well and the rough mix is like 90% there. Yeah. All I'm really trying to do is do a better version of the rough mix. Yeah. And that's the best case scenario. Sure. Uh, what you and I do, um, <laughs> rarely uh, does that, I mean, that happens occasionally, sure. but it's a lot more rare and I'm just going to be honest and, and, I'm kind of speaking for both of us, but this is more speaking for me. You have different experiences than I do, but my experience is that um, with the types of people that I produce or that I record or that I mix when I'm doing any of those three things, um, it's either lower budget or it's uh, just enough budget to do it good, um, but not enough to spend the time right. to um, do it perfect. Um with exceptions. Obviously there's exceptions where the players are just so good. They come in and nail it. Everybody knows exactly what they want. That'll happen occasionally. But for the most part, it's people that, you know, it's their, either their first real recording experience or sure. it's uh, people that come to me with a specific vision of what they want. And we have to work on it to get that because the thing that they want was captured by very specific people and very specific instruments. So we're having to recreate that the best we can um, to our knowledge of, Hey, how do we get this sound? Right. How do we, how do we make this band sound like M83? How do we get this band to sound like, kings of leon how do we get well it's like we talked about um i was working on that one band and uh, we talked about uh tame impala right and like tame impala is such a specific sound so specific like the only way that tame impala the sound exists is because the dude sat in a room and messed with it forever by himself by himself and that's the yeah. thing it's like so to try to copy that is not the same as trying to copy like acdc no not because Tim and Paula, he, he layers, Kevin layers specific things. So he'll have some random crappy pawn shop Kimberly guitar plugged into a solid state, you know, orange practice amp that has, that is way over driving it. Yeah. And then he'll record that and then he'll re reamp that through a bass amp and then he'll put that through a tape machine and he'll delay it by three seconds. Yeah. And then he'll record a synth bass over it. You know what I mean? And then he'll add octave pedals and then he'll like, that's, you can't, you can't really recreate that. So what do you do? You record synth bass, right? Like that's, that's the closest that you're going to get, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, you try and you try, but there is a certain point when like copying stuff is, is not, it's kind of fool's errand. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you need to just do it your own way, you know? And, and maybe that way, like 
it's frustrating for clients because they want something to sound like XYZ and it's like, but it's not XYZ. You know what I mean? It's just not. But like, it's XY by Coldplay. It might be XY, right. <laughs> and you can get your own version. It's like some people aren't happy until they sound just like you two or, you know, who. That's why Coldplay's record is called X and Y because they didn't <laughs> quite get the Z. The songs just weren't good. It's a, it's a really good sounding record, but the songs weren't good, so they couldn't put the Z on there. <laughs> okay, so um, let's talk about the first part of this, which is the mix process itself. Now, I've gotten some questions on email and um, some, from some friends of mine about how do I structure my mix process and how do I sort of set limits and things like that? And what does it look like when somebody says, hey, I'd like you to mix my song? So let's just get into it. The first thing that happens when somebody says, I want to hire you to mix my song is I need to have a conversation with them about that, what we just talked about, which is like the references, the direction, the inspiration, so that we're all on the same page and that I know, again, Am I just trying to beat the rough or am I trying to like make this something kind of anew? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. An example, one reason I, I wanted to have Jordan on the show is there's a great example of this where we were working on a song that he was producing and basically I, I royally screwed up mix A, the first mix. And, and it wasn't that it sounded bad, it was just completely wrong. That was really important because either I wasn't clear on the inspiration or I don't even remember. It's been a long time. I don't know if we really talked about it or maybe we did and I kind of just forgot. <laughs> um, that's very possible. Um, but that I guess there wasn't a clear sort of like, oh, I get it now. You know what I mean? And so uh, after I did the first mix, I sent it to Jordan, who was producing, and he called me and basically said, hey, love you, buddy, but... <laughs> yeah. It was a tough love moment for sure. It was. And because you're basically saying it's all wrong. Because you and I, we had been, we have worked together since 2010 on right. projects. We both lived in Tulsa. We didn't meet each other until about 09 or 2010, something like that. We started working on stuff together. And the story that you're talking about just happened last year. Right. So we're, we're talking about, you know, eight years of working together. No, it's not like we're new to working with each other. No, it was eight years of, of working together and being good friends um, sure. before this happened. So it was a little bit a little bit of a different dynamic than just a producer and a mixing engineer. Um, right. And also we tracked the song at your studio. Yeah, there's that too. My side of the story, um, it's not different than your side of the story, but I'm just going to elaborate on what you sure. said, but come coming from my perspective. So we, had, like I said, we tracked it at your studio and then we tracked some other songs there too while we were at it except for vocals so we tracked everything but vocals on three more songs after we finished that song right so you had already been removed from that song for three songs worth of time and this was not live in the studio type of tracking this was right. piecing songs together one at a time it was me and one other musician the the singer and songwriter of the band so he recorded all his parts. I recorded other parts. Um, so it took some time to record these right. songs. Well, and you guys recorded a bunch of like synth overdubs and all On kinds of own. other stuff. So a lot of it we did it at my house, to be honest, in my bedroom with keyboards plugged in direct into my Motu interface 
sometimes with a preamp in front of it, sometimes not just plug direct it into the preamp that's built into the, to the eight to eight X. Right. And, uh, we used a lot of Omnisphere too. So a lot of it was working with, uh, with software sense VSTs. Once we finished all of that, then we sent it to you. So there was definitely some time between the tracking process and the mixing process. Sure. And when we were tracking, we were listening to different influence songs uh, or showing you different influence songs of what we wanted engineering wise than what we had uh, for the for the mixing examples. Right. Um, and part of that reasoning was that we were just tracking uh, drums and guitars and vocals and some bass, but not all the bass. No, um, no, just just like one of the basses. Yeah, at your studio, and everything else was done in the box. Right. So uh, we were specifically just listening to drum to drum sounds, basically, sure. and guitar sounds for the influence stuff. So I, I, in my opinion, what happened was you listened to those songs and were thinking, oh, maybe I should mix it like this. But the song was the songs that we sent were specifically for drum tone, uh, not necessarily for the mix of the whole record. You right. know, we sent you a song that had drum tone we were looking for, but had no electronics on it at all. It was just, you know, like a three piece, like drums, guitar and bass. That's the drum tone we wanted, but it's not the mix we wanted because the, the mix that we had had about, you know, 20 additional tracks sure. uh, coming into it than the song that we sent you in the first place. And I think that's where your mixing style got lost in translation right. between between the two um, instances of recording it at your place and then you mixing it. After this whole thing happened, the way I mixed the song in such a way that it, it was kind of, I wouldn't say the antithesis of, but it was almost you know, the opposite of what was wanted, which was darker, dirtier, big, big, fat, low end. Right. And I kind of mixed it more like open and clear and bright and crisp. Now, granted, I'm, I acknowledge that I tend to like stuff like that anyway. Right. You know, that's my own bias, but I like legitimately, it wasn't that I tried to give it my sound or anything like that. It's like, I legitimately didn't realize that that's what was wanted. So after I sent the mix, Jordan called me, we had a heart to heart and he was like, listen, just listen to this song. And he sent me a reference song um, from another artist and he said, just really focus on this. And then I think you'll know what to do. Yeah. So I made a mix B and it was like a million times closer. <laughs> it was night and day. It sounded like, I mean, it sounded like two different mixing engineers, if I'm going to be honest, right? like mix A and mix B it wasn't even in the same ballpark. Um, yeah. Uh, which is a good thing. Like that, that means that you're good at your job is what that means <laughs> is that you, you're competent enough. Confident enough is confidence, a better word in your ability to mix different styles um, sure. or have a different style of mixing um, and not be so specific, but you're able to break out of the box and have a different mixing style than what you're used to sure. or than what you were gearing up towards for that specific song. Right. Um, which to me, that's really great. I mean, it's not every mixing engineer can do that and not every mixing engineer is expected to do that. Sure. I mean, there are right. some mixing engineers that people hire them because they do something specific, you know well, what I like mean? Like CLA. I mean, yeah. Let's you're going to get, you're going to get what he does no he matter has what a sound. And, and if like, you don't want it, you shouldn't have hired him, you know? Right. Exactly. And, and it's a good sound, but it is a sound. Yeah. And 
he probably has the ability to do other things, but he just generally doesn't. And when you want that sound, he can kill it. Now, mind you, I've never worked with anybody like CLA, so I don't have that type of name brand experience. But being an audio nerd and a music nerd and knowing a lot about that stuff and reading a lot of stuff and watching a lot of documentaries and YouTube videos and interviews and stuff like that. I think that for the most part, when guys of that stature are mixing something, you know, those types of conversations don't need to happen right? because of the amount of money that's really going into it. If I'm going to be honest. And in our case, part of it was my fault because we were doing the process in an inexpensive way. I should have thought of that going into it and remembered, oh, wait, we recorded a lot of stuff at my house for free and not with Kendall. So we've been away from that process for a minute. And Kendall's going into this blind at this point because all he did was record, you know, drums and guitars and a little bit of vocals on this song. And it almost would have been easier if I hadn't been involved at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because exactly. I hadn't heard the drums and bass and guitars. Right. Because, for example, one of the big mix notes that you gave me, um, and or the, I should say like the problems with my first mix, was you were like, um, so there's a lot of electronic percussion in the song. Yeah. And you were basically like, I want it like 50-50, live drums and electronic drums. Right. I had mixed it like 80-20, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like 80% live drums. Right. Because I was, you know, I was in that mode and my mind was biased towards that because I recorded it. And again, it was like the live drums sounded good. It's not the electronic stuff sounded bad. No. It's just, uh, it was just unclear. And like I said, a lot of that was my fault because I, as the producer, was not as clear to you before you started mixing. Like, I think I said some of those things while we were at your place tracking drums but I said it in passing. You right. know what I mean? Like I wasn't like looking right. you in the eye and saying like, hey, write this down. Remember to do this when you're mixing it. Right. This is this is the yeah. thing. And you honestly, I mean? if I remember, no, I do remember this specifically. When we were tracking it, we were not sure what we were going to do for mixing yet because we didn't know what our budget was, our, what our budget was. That's right. I remember you said you were going to try to get, uh, oh, I don't remember who it was to mix it, but it was a big, bigger name guy. Right. And at that point, we only had enough money to go and track stuff at your space. That's all we had enough money for. And we weren't sure how much money we were going to have in the end. So we didn't know if we were going to mix it ourselves, have you mix it, um, or have somebody you know, who had mixed the types of songs that we were trying to sound like mix it. And so we were trying to make that decision. And it's not that we weren't good enough to mix it ourselves or we didn't have confidence in you. We were just trying to decide how much money do we have and how quick do we want this process to go? Because if we had enough money, we would have paid you know, somebody specific to mix it and then we wouldn't have had to do mix notes. Sure. But we had enough money to pay you. We knew you were going to do a better job than we were going to do by ourselves because you have better equipment than we do. You have a better ear than we are. You're a better mixing engineer than I am. And so... We had enough money to pay you and not enough money to try to get uh, label representation and use one of their guys, you know, basically is what it ended up being. Right. And so, but we were very happy with that decision and confident that it was going to be great. So that was the interesting part was that when you send us mix a, 
that was where the tough love came in and where the frustration came yeah. in. We were like, oh man, this isn't right. Did we make a mistake? Yeah. Yeah. Did we do something wrong? You know what I mean? Right. Like we we weren't really second guessing our hiring you to mix it. We were second guessing did we record this wrong? Right. Like this this was mixed correctly. Did we screw it up? Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it all ended up working out. Um, yeah, B, yeah. I, I was very happy with the way that it turned out in the end. Me too. And you were nice enough to basically uh, have mix B, B mix A. Right. And so we kind of started over. Right. And so you gave us, you usually give um, your clients A, B, and C right. is the most common. It changes for every client. Every client's different. But the most, sure. the most common, I would say, from every mixing engineer is you get an A, B, and C included in the price for song mixing. Would you agree? Is that true? I would say a lot of people have some, you know, form of that. Yeah. Yeah. Some form of that. Some people do two variations. Some people do four variations. It just depends on the engineer and it depends on the price and and everything. Right. In our instance, you were kind enough to, you know, basically erase that mix A ever happened and you turned B into mix A and then we got to do the two uh, revisions and it turned out awesome. I love, I love the way that that song sounds. It's dark and heavy in all the right ways. It's not heavy in a rock and roll stance. It's heavy in a, it's got weight. It's got weight. Yeah. It's, it's, it hits your chest. It sounds like a lo-fi hip hop song, but with, it's not hip hop, but it's not hip hop. And that's exactly what we were going for. Okay, so now that we're talking about the mix process, um, let's talk about that, the mix A, B, and C. So sure. everybody does have a slightly different way of doing it, but I would say most engineers have some form of, you know, okay, you got your initial mix and then a tweak mix and then, you know, maybe another tweak. But uh, I wanted to talk about my process because I know there are a lot of people out there who uh, I've gotten some emails and questions about like, you know, how many mixes do you give them? And how many revisions do you give them? And the way that I like to do it is generally mix A, B, and C. Now, let's talk about each of these and what what they look like. So mix A is my initial mix, and I usually do it by myself with nobody in the room. And it's really important to understand the song at this point. As you've learned from this story, <laughs> it's really important that mix A is like, I know the road. Right. I'm, I'm on the right road. I'm going down the road. And we're going to end up, you know, pretty close. And mix A is intended, I'd like purposely make mix A to be like 85 to 95% there. Like I, I don't try to make it 100% yet. And that's because that extra 5% can really take time, like specific automation things and like really specific moves. And I want to make sure that the client is happy with it in general first. For example... I almost never do vocal automation on mix A because I don't know if they're even happy with the vocal level on average or the vocal tone on average. And I don't want to have to like do all that automation and then just undo it. You know, like if the client says like, well, the vocal's too loud or it's too present or it's too tucked in, I need to kind of get it at a good happy medium before I feel like I can do automation up and down. At least that's how I feel. Also, depending, I'm going to butt in for a second, Sure. depending on how it was recorded and if you recorded it or not, sometimes mix A serves the purpose of making sure everything else before mixing was correct. Right. Making sure, oh, we use the right take of this. 
Right. Or, you know, because sometimes... And during the recording process, things get overdubbed or they get replaced. Sometimes they're tracked at multiple recording studios. Sometimes you haven't recorded any of it at all. And the producer or the engineer at the other studio or the client sent you the wrong file by accident. Right. And so a lot of times that's what happens with mix a as well. Sure. Well, and sometimes in modern times, a lot of decisions can be deferred to the mixer. So sometimes I might get tracks to mix and they're like, Hey, well, you know, we weren't really sure if we wanted to use the shaker here or the tambourine here. So like sometimes a lot of my job involves mutes. Right. And, you know, what some would call underdubbing, you know, where I'm actually removing things. And so that's, you're, you're right. Like sometimes mix A is like, do we like what he removed? Right. <laughs> or, or, you know, what he chose to turn on in this section and turn off in that section. Yeah. In modern times, it's almost like the mixing engineer is an assistant producer in a way. Right. Because yeah. of those types of decisions. And that's where Mix A comes in. Right. And not not that it should be that way, but... <laughs> no. But Mix A is for, hey, let's make sure that we're on the same page. Let's make sure these assistant production type of things that I did on Mix A that you guys like. Let's make sure you like the reverb that I'm using. Right. Let's make sure that you like these delay hits that I think sound cool here, but you guys didn't necessarily have. Right. Let's make sure you like that I faded this guitar file and that there's not noise at the beginning of it, or did you want that noise? Sure. You know what I mean? So a lot of it is stuff like that, like production decisions that go into mixing. Even down to like snare samples, kick samples. Oh, absolutely. I mean, huge thing. Because yeah. that's one of those weird crossover areas where like some people don't want their mixer to add samples and other people fully expect their mixer to add samples. And if you don't, they get mad at you. Right. And so you have to kind of gauge each situation and be like uh is this the type of band that would get upset if i put in drum samples or are they ex- and not everybody will communicate with that with you either right. sometimes you have to guess or ask them right and again sometimes people aren't sure how far you're going to take it right some people again are expecting you to just beat the rough and other people are expecting you to take it everyone has this sort of different mentality of what mixing is now which is partly what makes the job difficult absolutely because Again, you might have some people that say like, oh, well, that'll sound fine in the mix. And it's like, how far do you think I'm taking this? Or what do you mean by that? Right. Do you mean that will sound fine in the mix, meaning... It sounds bad now? (laughs) Or do you just mean that it sounds too loud right now? Because if you're just saying it's too loud right now, then yes, you're right, because I'm going to turn it down. Because we're tracking right now, and this is not the real mix, this is the monitor. But... In reality, a lot of times when people say that, they mean they don't like it. Right. And that means you have to take a step back and make a decision before it goes to mixing. Right. That it's going to be right and that it is going to sound good in the mix. So that's a definitely important tip. When you're producing a band, when you're engineering a band, if you ever hear them say something like that, like, oh, that'll be fine in the mix, take a moment and be like, what don't you like about it? Is there something you don't like about it? Right. Because... And just come to the bottom of it. Find the answer... Because sometimes they don't like it and that's just their way of being nice and not telling you that they don't like it. And it's going to be a lot easier for mixing engineers and Kendall, you can attest to this specifically because you and I have had this experience together where it's going to be a lot easier for a mixing engineer to, for mix a to be close to what you want 
if you have already made all of those decisions. Right. If you have already comped and edited everything, if you've already gotten the artist approval on how it's going to sound, where things are placed, and about the right level. For instance, as a producer, a lot of times I will do what's called a production mix Mm -hmm. before it even gets to mix A. What that means is, as the producer, I use Pro Tools, I have everything that we've recorded in a Pro Tools session, and I'm using that session to record post-production things or overdubs or do edits, things like that. Sometimes I'll have four or five different sessions, depending on what I'm using it for and what I'm working on at the time being. A lot of times, it can be as easy as it was the drum editing session, and everything else was recorded so well that we just added it to that, and then I just did a quick little mix so that the client was happy before we sent it off to mixing. What that allows the mixing engineer to do is to hear what I call a reference mix that is not just a reference of another band or another song, but a reference of that song saying, hey, this is pretty close. I didn't spend a lot of time on this, but I used a couple EQ plugins. I might have used a compression plugin or you know, this is kind of how we want these things to be panned right. or we definitely want this bass to be pretty gritty. So make sure that you add some grit to it there like we're doing or, Hey, we want this specific reverb on this song. And that's the the tone that we're going for. This band has to have a huge reverb on the vocal because they're a shoegaze band. You have to let mixing engineers know that stuff. And a good way to do that is with a production mix. Right. And it's different than a rough mix. And that's why I like that you delineate those. Cause like a rough mix could be anything. It could be like, it can be anything. I just, I just hit render and there it is. Right. Like it it could be something you spend a lot of time on or it could be something you literally spent zero time on. But when you add the word production to it, that means that you put time into it. That means that you were producing that. You're you're telling me like, Hey, this is, I, I, you can take it as a rough mix in a way you can say like, this obviously is not the, the mix. I didn't spend tons of time on it or whatever, but it will give me cues as to like, Oh wow. I can hardly hear the guitars but it tells me we want the guitars quiet. Right. Or, or, you know, I, oh my gosh, that vocal has a ton of reverb, but that tells me, hey, however you choose to do it, that's fine, but we want a lot of reverb on the vocal. Exactly. And so that's really helpful for me. So not everybody does that, but I think, right. every, I think everybody should. Yeah. It's really helpful for me. And I like that anytime we generally work on a project these days, Jordan sends me something in that manner. You know, that just, it cuts out a lot of time. It cuts out a lot of your time of making decisions. It cuts out a lot of time of having long phone conversations about how we want something to happen. Yeah, And it just, it makes the, honestly, it makes the client feel more at ease too. And yeah. it makes us feel more at ease with how the client feels about what we're doing. Because if the client is happy with the production mix to yeah. a point where you can explain to them, hey, this is not a mix, but this is the general idea. And if they're happy with that, then you know they're going to be happy with mix A. It's almost like pre-mix notes. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. a, it's like an audio version of mix notes before yeah. you start that says, hey, take this and run with it and say like, you know, do your better version of this, basically. Right. Kinda. And saying all of that, that's if you are working, that's if there's a separate producer than there is a mixing engineer. Right. Sometimes people use the same guy. You know, a lot yeah. of times, Kendall, specifically you, I know that you do that a lot, where yeah. you are the one producing it or co-producing it with the band or artist, and you're the recording engineer and you're the mixing engineer. 
So yeah, sometimes tricky. you don't need to do the production mix because you know already. You know it's or but, the production mix is the rough mix because you're coming up with production ideas with the client with the right artist as you go. There. Yeah. So after mix A, I will send them the song, and usually over email, I usually send an MP3 just because it's easy, it's quick. I usually go 320, you know, on the on the MP3, try to do a high quality MP3, but it's easy for them to pass around on email. I don't try to bother with Dropbox or anything for mix A, and mix B is where mix notes come into play. Now the rest of this show, we're going to talk a little bit about mix notes, but mix B is. Um, I get their notes and I make tweaks. Hopefully, mix B is the last mix. After they hear mix A and make their tw- and, and, and give me their notes, um, you know, mix B usually doesn't take me a super long time, um, barring some sort of special circumstances. You know, a, a mix A might take me six hours, eight hours, but mix B might take me two hours. Mix B generally has their tweaks, plus I usually have some tweaks after taking a break and listening to it after, you know, a day or two. Um, and it usually has a lot more automation. And I'm trying to make Mix B the final. I'm trying to make Mix B 100% if I can. Hopefully with their notes, if their notes are good and if I can interpret them well and it, and it makes sense, hopefully that that's it. But, you know, it doesn't always come across that way. Sometimes they have a lot of maybes in there. They have a lot of like, well, try this, try this, try this. And that's okay. But again, that can start to bleed into the sort of production side of things where they're saying like, well, hey, maybe try copying and pasting this part over here. And those instances are almost guaranteed to have a third mix because they might like it, but it's too loud. Or they might want to undo that or maybe they want to try something different or so I, I bring all that up to say sometimes mix B is a little bit of a science experiment like sometimes they want to start trying some stuff I wouldn't say that's necessarily the best place for that but a lot of times that will come into play where they're like well maybe try this maybe try this sometimes that ends up demanding a mix C after that as a producer I will a lot of times, unless I truly believe that it's important to convince the client to not ask for those types of things in notes. A lot of times I'll say, you know, if you really wanted that, we should have done that before it went to mixing. Right. And if we didn't, then it was either my fault for not doing it or your fault for not communicating to me that you wanted it or both of our faults for miscommunicating what it was that we both wanted. And that's not Kendall's fault. That's not the mixing engineer's fault. And so what we're doing is we are adding more work and more time for the mixing engineer whose time is precious and we're paying a set amount of time or a set amount of money for the mix. And we really need his ears to be focused on the mix in general. Right. If there is something not parts or tuning not or parts, editing, technique, any of editing, that. yeah. We need to do that ourselves right. if that's the problem. Now, sometimes after mix A, we will hear, oh crap, we sent the wrong vocal take, or we sent the wrong guitar solo take. Right. Or we sent you know, or we sent the untuned vocal instead of the tuned vocal. Right. Or we decided to use the untuned vocal instead of the tuned vocal, and we sent him the tuned by accident. Or you but, sent me both, and I naturally went to the tuned one. 
Right. But we wanted the untuned or we wanted both and we wanted it panned left and right and do the Elliot Smith thing, you know? And so some of that stuff happens and some of that stuff is easy to fix, but there are other things that I try to convince the client or artist not to put in their mix notes. And so all of the time I will have the band, the artist or the client and or all three or any co-producers that are working on it with me to send me their mix notes directly before the mixing engineer gets mix notes. Right. For instance, we're, we're working with a band right, right now. now. We're yeah. in this process with a specific band that is led by the artist songwriter individual. It is a band, but it's led by one guy. He makes most of the decisions. I had to do that a couple of times with him. I had to tell him, Hey, we should not put that in the mix notes section because that is not a mix note. Right. It was to the point where there was a paragraph description of why he thought it would be better to do one thing in the mix versus the other thing in the mix. Right. And I had to say to him, listen, that's not a mix note. That is a phone conversation. Right. Those are two different things. Or that's a decision that you haven't made yet. Like, just decide and tell me what you want. Exactly. And so that's what I had to talk to him about. And I said, okay, is there anything else in the rest of these songs where there is a decision that has to be made? Because we are done making decisions now. He is mixing this. Right. And what a mix note is, is not let's make a decision after this happens. A mixed note is the decisions have been made. We want something a little bit louder or a little bit quieter or a little bit darker or a little bit warmer or a little bit brighter or a little bit wetter or a little bit drier, you know, and we can use specific lingo to get that across. For instance, a lot of times what I will do with my mixed notes from mix a to mix B as a producer or as an artist to the mixing engineer is I will say, Guitar up by one dB. But I won't just say that. What I'll do is I'll break it down between sections of the song. So the mixing engineer should know already what the verse is, what the intro is, what the chorus is, what the pre-chorus is, bridge, so on and so forth. So I sometimes will do overall notes where it's like, overall, I want the snare to be crunchier. Maybe use a different snare sample or crunch up that snare sample that you used. Over the whole song. Over the whole song. Or the overheads are too loud in the whole song. Bring them down by 3 dB. But most of the notes are in the verse, I want the guitar to be panned left. Right. Farther than it currently is. But in the chorus, I like how you have it panned. Because there's a different amount of instruments in the verse than there is the chorus. And that guitar needs to be more left heavy because there's a keyboard that's right heavy that's not happening in the chorus. Right. Or vice versa, whatever that is. Or sometimes it'll be as simple as bass is too crunchy in the verse, but not crunchy enough in the chorus. We really want it to sound like he turned on a distortion pedal on the chorus. So can you use if sometimes we'll use two uh we'll you we'll record two different bass lines simultaneously one will be a clean di and one will be through an amp so we'll say hey can you turn the di up and the amp down right and the verse and then and so it'll be mixed those are the types of mix notes that are actual mix notes from a to b from mix notes a to mix notes b but it's very short and sweet sentences 
It right. is. It should never be a paragraph explanation of why you want it. It should always be very short. Sometimes they're not even full sentences. It's just right. vocal up two dB or it's right. guitar down one dB. It's very simple right. things is what it should be. Yeah. In general, mix B, I think, is a fairly quick process um, if the mix notes are concise and clear. And it should be. And um, barring... Uh, any sort of freak things. Like if there's something that is say a really big deal, like, you know, the drums in general don't sound right. Like if like the drums don't sound right is not a mix note. You know what I mean? Right. Like that's a production note. That's like, that's a statement. That's not a note. Right. That's a statement. Right. The, the drums don't sound right. It's not a mix note. That's a statement that you're making. And if that's the case, that's when a conversation needs to be had. Like, Hey, it, what about them is not sounding right? You know, is there something we can fix? Because, because again, you don't want to have to take this into mix D E F G. No, <laughs> you know, you don't want to do that. And we'll talk about that. Well, and if you do, it better if it, especially if it's not the mixing engineer's fault, which almost always it's not. <laughs> you need to charge for that. Right. You need to have a set. Hey, it's an extra hundred bucks or 50 bucks or 300 bucks or whatever it is, yeah. but you know, it's, yeah. you got to percentage it with how much you're charging in the first place. But right. Yeah. Most mixers charge by song. Yes. Not by hour. Correct. Um, so that's one of the big reasons why the more mixes you have, the longer you spend on it. Right. You know, uh, it can get, it can get really time consuming. In general, try to get your mix B to 100%. Try to add in your own notes. Try to take their notes at what they are. And we're going to talk about here in a little bit about sort of interpreting mix notes. But um, when it comes time for mix C, if there is a mix C, these are generally tiny, small, little tweaks that could go either way. Like the goal would be for mix B to be like 100% or 99%. So where that mix C... You know, any additional tweaks that are there are super small, super quick. We're talking 10-minute fix, not three-hour fix. I will say that I probably end up making a mix C about 80% of the time. Yeah, most people do, I think. Right, and it's not that mix B was not 100%. It was that it's usually for something super small, like yep. mix B is awesome, turn up the vocal a little. Right. And that's it. You know what I mean? Like... Or split the difference from the note I gave you from mix A to B. Right. That's another important thing. Don't get rid of your mix notes. <laughs> right. Keep it. Because you might have said, guitar's way too quiet, up 4 dB, and then you don't realize how much 4 dB really is. And right. the mixing engineer does 4 dB, and now it's way too loud. Right. And so sometimes that does happen for mix C, where the mixing engineer's like, okay, I'll do it, but it's going to be really loud. And then he was right. And you say, you know what? You were right. Split the difference. Right. Right. So hopefully mix C is a super, super quick process. Mix C is also a chance for me to kind of finalize it and make sure it's ready for mastering. Because a lot of times on mix B and mix A, I'll put a limiter on the master bus just so it's louder and they can hear it. And, you know, it's it, it's not going to sound like... Because I generally mix with a lot of headroom. and I do that all the time. Do you do that all the time? I do it a lot I, where I'll put a, I'll put a limiter on the master to send mix A and B. I do it all the time. So for mix C, if mix C is indeed the final, I take all the limiters off. I take all that stuff off. 
Right. And make sure the top and bottom of the song have, you know, the fades correct and it's the right length and everything. And there's no sloppy edits on the top and bottom. Now, in theory, again, that's not really my job. That should have been handled production process. But sometimes things slip through the cracks. You can't help it. Yeah. And also sometimes it's things like, like certain plugins, especially certain reverbs. If you automate them on or off, they'll like click a little bit and you'll hear, right. You know, like or something. So you got to make sure that they're not like turning on and off at, at the top and bottom of the song or at a silent section. Just, you know, go through and just double check all that stuff and give yourself a little bit of time to just make sure it is truly indeed ready um, for mastering. And also make sure if you did do any edits or anything, like let's say rather than automating a mute, you just chopped out audio. Right. Um, which is sometimes easier and quicker. You made sure that the fades are clean and all that stuff. So yeah. ideally Mixie is a hundred percent and it is ready for master and you've taken off limiters and you've made sure that you've got plenty of headroom for mastering. And Mixie is what I send to the mastering engineer. I would say 90% of the time, 95% of the time. Right now mix D E and F. I mean, if a mix D E F et cetera are needed, I usually do try to charge for it. How much do you charge? Oh, well, I, you don't have to answer that question. Do you, is it like a percentage of what you've charged total? Is it like, let, let's say, just in theory, you charged $500 per song to mix, right. right? What I would do, and I'm just curious if you do the same thing, is I, if I'm giving them A, B, and C included in that $500 price, what D would cost is whatever... 500 divided by three is right. So for instance, if you're charging, if you're new to the game, you're charging a hundred bucks a song, right? You'd charge what? 25 bucks. You know, um, is that what you would do? Or do you go lower than that? Because they've already paid you or what do you do? So I hate charging for mix D. I, I know I have to do it. Um, but I hate doing it because it's, it can be a little bit of an awkward conversation, you know, and not every project will I do it in certain cases, like the, the band we talked about earlier where I kind of screwed up the first mix. I didn't charge for a mix D because I kind of looked at it as a mix C because a was like thrown out, you know, but was part of that because we're friends and we have a close relationship and you knew that I wasn't going to screw you over in the end. Probably. I mean, there's probably an element of that, you know, that just unconsciously I, you know, I knew that honestly, if a band says, if you finish mix C and you send it to mastering or whatever, and they're like, Oh wait, can you just turn the bass down? Like one DB? I probably won't charge for that mix D, you know, it's fine. It'll take me five minutes. You know what I mean? But if, if we're on mix C and they have like 10 notes and then I do mix C there's a good chance they're going to want to mix D like right mix C generally should have like two notes max. So you usually know that you're going to do a mix D before mix C is done. Right. Because if they send you 10 notes on mix C, you're like, well, there's almost no chance this is going to be perfect. Right. Because they're either going to want one tiny addition. Cause that's one of the problems with mix notes is that if they, let's say they give you 10 mix notes at a certain point in the mix, everything affects everything. And so when you make those 10 changes, suddenly now something else sounds wrong. Like you've made those 10 changes and you're like, well, now I can't hear the vocal. <laughs> right. Because you asked to turn everything else up but the vocal. Almost. Right. Yeah. If they say turn the kick up, turn the guitar up and turn up the cymbals. Well, you're going to need to turn up the vocal. Yeah. And, like, and probably the bass. 
and probably the bass. It's yeah. gonna happen. So that's that's one of the things that gets tricky is when when you see a mix like I fully expect mix A to have five to ten notes. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's expected. Mix B ideally has, you know, two. Two, three. Yeah. Now if mix C if you if they get mix C and they're like, hey, can you do this? Blah blah blah. That's when you have to make a decision. You know, well, I have to charge them for this. Now, hopefully, you've disclosed that to them up front. Like, hey, mix ABC is how I do it. If you need mix D, I charge for it. Like, please, ex- you know, please tell them that process before you start. And as a producer, it's my job to tell the client that for the mixing engineer, right? And it should be understood. Like right. the mixing engineer should not have to tell you, especially if you're a repeat customer. Like if you're a producer that has used the same mixing engineer more than once, you should already have a relationship with that mixing engineer and know that he or she charges more for a mix C sometimes or for a mix D or for, you know, whatever that looks like. And you should explain that to the client before mix notes start. And it is up to us as people in the recording industry to tell these things to our clients right. before the process starts. Don't ever think that people are going to be offended that we don't think they know how it works. Right. You should always There's no reiterate. offense taken by that. Yeah. No. And if there is, it's their fault, not yours. <laughs> yeah. The producer is just as responsible as the mixing engineer for explaining that to the client before it happens so that if it does happen, Nobody can get mad at each other. Right. There's no producer throwing mixing engineer under the bus, mixing engineer throwing producer under the bus. If if you're the same person, if you are producing it and you're mixing it, it is you should you should you'd have to be the one to tell. Right. But if there's a producer involved, the producer should know that it is his or her job to do that. Right. And you know, it's not that hard really. All you have to do is save a little word document on your computer that describes the mix process and just email it to them. You know what I mean? Yep. It t- takes 2 seconds to be like this is what mix A is, this is what mix B is, this is what mix C is. And that's a very simple thing to do because you can do that when the mixing engineer is about to upload mix A. Right. You can say, "Hey, we're about to get mix A." Or the mixing engineer sends it to the producer, producer has the Dropbox folder and before you send the Dropbox folder to the client, you say, hey, you're about to receive Mix A. Just a reminder, here's what it looks like. Right. And then you explain all of that to them in an email one more time so that it is in writing. Right. But I I honestly think that it's important to explain that to them even before earlier. the recording process. Right, even earlier. As early yeah. as possible so that they know as soon as they as soon as you know that you're producing it. Right. That should be one of the things that you explain. As soon as you decide how you're going to do the mixing process and who's going to mix it, that's one thing that you should mention. Right. I always I, I, I agree for sure. I always try to help bands understand that. Like I actually have it in my contract. Like even though it's not like a legal thing, you know, I put it in there like, hey, this is what the mix process is. Just letting you know, <laughs> like I am, I want to put it in the contract so that I, so that they read it, you know what I mean? So that they understand like, this is how he does the mix process. Now I don't always charge for mix D or E or whatever. I, I usually do. But if, if I tried something experimental effects or right, because sometimes let's say mix B, they only had one note, right? And that note was vocals too dry. Well, 
You're going to have to add some stuff. I'm going to have to add some stuff. And that Yourself. stuff may be yeah. kind of wacky. It might be too much. It might be too little. Like, it really depends on the mix notes for B and C. So sometimes I'm like, okay, well, that was my bad. I went too far. I'll split the difference. I'll give you a mix D for free. But if it's stuff like turn up the vocal, turn down the guitar, pan this more, EQ that diff, you know, it's like, okay, that's a new mix. Like, that's, that is definitively... That's an extra charge. That's not a tweak. You know what I mean? That's a new mix. <laughs> right. So when I do charge bands for a mix DEF, I try to keep it pretty cheap, but not so cheap that they want to do it again. <laughs> so like I might charge 40 bucks or 50 bucks or something to where it's like, okay, that was worth it, but I definitely want to make sure and get it on mix D, not E, not F. You know, because I don't want them to just like, oh, it was only 10 bucks. You know, I'll do that five more times. You know what I mean? Do you ever change that depending on the client? I do. Like not not to judge people, but you can tell who has the budget and who doesn't. Do you? Yeah, sometimes I will because sometimes you have the clients that are super talented and have no money. It actually seems like that's really common. Because you want to do them right and make a perfect mix or close to perfect. But you also know that they don't have the extra 50 bucks. So in that case, is that the case where you say 20 bucks or is that the case where you're like, "Uh, I'm not going to charge. Right. That I would say it's one or the other. Like it really depends on the individual circumstance. If it's like a super talented client, who's been just a gem of a person through the process, I usually won't charge them. If it's, if it's like, okay, this person has been a little bit of a pain to work with. Their mix notes are still pretty small, but it's going to take some time. I will, I will charge something cheap. But if it's a lot of times, what I find is that people with bigger budgets can be a little lazier because they know they have a big budget. Sometimes they feel like, oh, well, I, I don't really need to get all my mix notes in on mix A. Like I'll just, I'll take my time on it and you know, blah, blah, blah. Because they don't mind paying an extra 50 bucks for a mix D, E, F, and G. Right. Um, but I don't want to do that because uh, I wanted to talk really quickly about this just to more elaborate on this, but why it's important to set these limits is I think really important. Yeah. And I think the first part of that is that mixing quickly is good. Like that's a good thing. If I, if I can mix a song in four hours, I would do it. Um, that's great. I mean, mixing can take an incredible amount of time, a surprising amount of time. And the longer you listen, the more biased you will be. There is no escaping that. Like it doesn't matter how good you are, how long you've been doing it, you will get biased. And if I can add to that, That's one of the reasons why I think most of the time it is important to have multiple people involved in the recording process. Sometimes you can do it by yourself, but that is the exception. The majority of the time, I personally think it's better if the mixing engineer is a different person than the producer, because the producer is already so invested into this song and has listened to it so much. They are so incredibly biased that it affects how they're mixing it. Right. Yeah. I would say, I would say that too. And and again, if you look at any big budget project, it's almost always a different mixer. Almost you know I mean? always. It's almost always a third party person for that exact reason. So in general, you got to set these limits for people. You got to tell them, listen, mixing quick is a good thing. I, I don't want you to be biased. I want you to, uh, you know, try to accomplish 
all of your mix notes in mix a if possible like where that's going to get you 95% of the way there and mix b can be 95 8, 98 100% um don't don't delay your mix notes you know um don't don't wait don't say oh well i'll just wait till mix b to hear that you know what i mean just give me all your mix notes we'll see how they all work together you know, as I like to say, and I don't remember who said it first, but I like to say mixes don't get finished. They get released. You know, it, yeah. it's really true because you can continue mixing a song forever if you don't set limits and you will <laughs> like how many times, like I was just talking about this with a friend of mine last night. What is the time limit for you personally, where when you look back on something that you've recorded or mixed what's the time limit for how much you hate it? (laughs) Like, like for me, I like stuff that I just finished stuff from a year ago. I'm, I would say 70% of it. I like stuff from two years ago. I can't stand. (laughs) I think it's different for different people. Sure. Um, I, for me, it's different than, than you. And I think for the guys in my band, it's different to answer your question. I think in general, I try to stay away from listening to it at all <laughs> after I'm done because then when I have to listen to it, I like it. Right. No, no, that's a good be, point. Like sometimes I'll hear a mix that I did from like three years ago Right. that in my mind, I remember being like, oh, I hate it. And then I'll listen to it like three years later and I'm like, huh, not bad. I'm the same way. And that is the best case scenario. That's why I try to not listen to it at all after it's done. When it's done, it's done. And that way, when you're in a car with a buddy and he happens to play that song by accident, or if it's the guy that was the drummer in that band and he's reminiscing, you bring it up. You don't have to lie to them. You know, you don't, you don't have to put on a facade and say, Oh yeah, I still enjoy this song. You can still, (laughs) it's easier to appreciate the song when you've been removed from it for a long time. Right. When you don't remember the snare chain and when you don't remember the vocal chain or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, and when you're not beating yourself over an edit that you missed after the third time you listened to it and it was too late to go back because it's already been sent to mastering. It's so true. Like sometimes I'll do a mix and, and I just bring this up mostly for any listeners out there to remind them, like we all feel this way from time. Like we all experience the, oh my gosh, I'm the worst mixer ever feeling all the time on, on a regular, like on a weekly. It doesn't matter if I would say a good 80% of the stuff that I do, I feel good about when I finish it. You know what I mean? Like I feel really good about it. The other 20%, I'm probably like, yeah, I, I was happy with the mix, but you know, not super happy. But then after it's done, after it's been released, you know, it, we all have experienced that feeling of, man, if I had just turned that snare down or if I had just, that maybe that kick is too clicky or maybe the vocal's too quiet or maybe the vocal's too loud. Or, like, and you shouldn't try to beat yourself up over that sort of thing because again, like I said, mixes don't get finished. They get released and you have to recognize that, that they're done. Don't, don't go back and be like, man, I need to remix that or, you know, just it's done. It's over. And sometimes that can be painful. Sometimes it can be like, man, (laughs) but you know, maybe that's a good rule. Maybe we shouldn't listen to our old stuff. Maybe we should like say like, you can't listen to it for at least a year. (laughs) I say only listen to it when you have to. Our work reflects the new work that we get. You know what I mean? Like people look at what we've done 
And so when you're, you know, signing on to work with somebody and they say, can you show me something you've done or whatever? And you put it on your website, they want to hear something that you've done. And that's really hard because you have to kind of go back and revisit that. That's what I mean by when you have to, right? That's the moment when you have to listen to what you've done is when you're deciding what to send a, a potential client or because when you have the client in the studio and you're deciding what to play for them to show them an example of what you did to get them to agree with a decision that you want to make about the recording process that's about to happen or to get them excited about how this could end up sounding. A lot of times we play things that we have already done, already recorded, they're already mastered so that people can hear the finished product and get excited about it. Right. And those are the times when you have to listen to it. And that's what I mean by only listen to it when you have to. Yeah. Cause you'll drive yourself nuts. I mean, (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely crazy. You will you will hate yourself and you'll feel but the other way you could spin this is since we've all experienced that, you should be excited in a bit in a, in a small way because that means that you've gotten better. Like if you're hearing something that you did 6 months ago and you're like, "Man, that's not good." The only way that you're able to say it's not good is because you're better now. And that's a good thing. You should be happy about that, you know? So I would say try, if you do have to listen to it, try not to focus on the bad parts of it. Try to focus on the fact that, man, I have improved since then because I hear things in this that I would make, you know, I would change. Um, Now, hopefully, you know, hopefully I'm wishing all of you out there don't have to listen to your stuff very much because it, it can be hard. It's like, you know, who is it? Tom Cruise that never watches his own movies. Right. Because he like physically feels sick. Like he physically like has an anxiety attack. Yeah. Watching his, and some of his movies are some of the classics, right? But he cannot watch them. And I think it's a similar phenomenon where he suddenly is like, oh my gosh, what was I doing? I'm, I'm a loser. What, you know what I mean? And it's not good for you. It's not good for you to go down that road. I agree. Okay, so the next thing we're going to talk about is interpreting and uh, understanding mix notes. Okay, so we've obviously talked a little bit about it, inserted here and there, but we're going to go over some do's and don'ts for asking the band for mix notes. So number one, do not give me five different sets of mix notes from each band member. Okay, that is... (laughs) A, a fool's errand does not that's not going to help okay instead make it a priority to get the band together you know and you don't have to be with them in the room but tell the band like get together talk about the mix notes fight it out debate it and then send your mixer one set of cohesive mix notes and that goes for you as well as a producer that your mix notes should be edited with the bands or the artist mix notes. Right. Don't send your mixer two different mix notes. One is from the producer and one is from the band or one is from the singer and one is from the producer. Don't do that. Edit them together and get them approved by the band or the artist or the client before you send them to the mixer and say to them, here are the master mix notes with your mix notes and my mix notes. Some of them that were similar, I edited them to make them one thing instead of two separate things. Right. So that's easier for the mixer. That's part of your job as the producer to do that with the mix notes. Right. Like if, if the producer had a note that was like, uh, vocal isn't cutting through, maybe brighten it up a little bit. And then the singer had a note, Hey, my vocals a little bit quiet. You know what I mean? If you have both of those in there, your brain might interpret those as two notes as make it a little brighter 
and turn it up. But the producer needs to take those notes and sort of uh, boil it down and say, does it just need to be brighter or does it need to go up? You know, or 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 is it a little bit of both? And distill that down to one bullet point and say, turn the vocal up and make it a little brighter or whatever. And that is one great point to answer the question, what do you do when people ask you as a producer, what does a producer do? That is a big thing that producers do is they have to make the decisions on different people's opinions and knowing what they mean and interpreting that to the mixer or to the recording engineer or to the mastering engineer to make sure that everybody's on the same page and you you know when the vocalist means vocal up, what that really means is vocal drier or what that really means is vocal brighter or what that really means is automated up just for the chorus. You have to know how to get the true answer for that question and make the true answer for that question be clear in the mix notes that the mixer makes the right decision. Right. And if there is no producer on the project, or if the mixer and producer are the same person, then you are responsible for that, for understanding like, hey, what is it that they really mean? Not only that, but sometimes the producer, uh, whether it's like a separate producer or a sort of the de facto producer of the project, sometimes they have to make the decision to override a mix note. Right. And that can be difficult. Like sometimes the guitar player or whatever is like, hey, I can't hear my guitar. And I mean, of course, the guitar player always wants more guitar. Always. Um, But the producer might have to be like, you know what? This song isn't a guitar rock song. Like, it's fine. So they have to choose to edit out certain notes, you know? Um, And that can be really tricky. That can be a hard decision. But again, that shouldn't be all weighed on the mixer's shoulders, you know? That that shouldn't be the mixer having to interpret all that stuff. Ideally, there should be a producer involved in some way that can help to interpret. Right. So, number two is do not text me your mix notes. Instead, email me, uh, email me just either in the email or send me a Word document or a PDF. Uh, it's just way easier texting. Although it can be convenient, it's very easy to have text lost or you, you know, you know, clear your text or you can't find it or you have to scroll through and find it. It's much easier to just send an email. And I'll actually combine this with number three, which is don't call me for your mixed notes unless it's a big deal. So again, send an email. I think that's the most effective way to do it. Calling is difficult for me personally, because I generally turn my phone on silent during my sessions. Um, if I just left my phone on all the time, I'd go nuts. I'd get phone calls all the time. But if it's a big deal, like the story we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, like where I kind of screwed up mix a, like then it is best to do a phone call. Um, it is best to be like, Hey, listen, the direction is not quite what we want, blah, blah, blah. If it's a big deal, do a phone call. But otherwise, send an email. I would recommend it being in PDF format um, because different people use different computers and different types of emails and different email fonts and things like that. And it just looks cleaner and better if you did it in Word or whatever word processing software that you use um, and you know export that or save that as a PDF. That way it looks the same to everybody. Right. Yeah, a PDF will look the same on an iPhone that it does on a Windows 10 computer that it does on, I mean... Like sometimes if you send a Word document, somebody uses Pages and not Word, and it's right. going to be... Or they have an older version of Word or, you know, yeah. whatever. Right. PDF recommended. Um, number four, don't 
rush the process. And what I mean is for the client telling them, hey, don't rush the process. Instead, give the song a few days, let it marinate a little bit, listen on different systems, and think about the mix notes. And again, they need to get, if there's multiple members involved, they need to get together and talk and physically like be in the room with each other. I mean, I think it'd be really nice in an ideal world if the band was in one room together and they listened on one system. And then individually they listen on their own systems, you know, like so that everyone's kind of giving it the best chance of, you know, as many different ears on the project as possible, but at the same time making it a point to have a cohesive, like, okay, this is what I think, this is what I think. Because sometimes I'm sure you've experienced too, where sometimes you'll get when you get the individual band notes, which is a mistake, as we said, you'll have one person say bass is too loud and the other person says bass is too quiet. And the other person says, oh my gosh, the bass sounds amazing. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and most like, of that is due to one person's listening on headphones. One person's listening right. in their car stereo with a broken subwoofer. And one person's listening on their home JBL's stereo system that has a preamp on it and sounds amazing. Right. You know, so, and so it's important for the band to get together and distill all those things. Cause probably the best thing to do in that scenario in the mix is nothing. <laughs> nothing. <Right. laughs> I mean, that's probably the correct mix move is don't even include it in the mix notes. Now it's also important though, to, I think to ask the band, you know, if they, if they listen to the mix on different systems to note if there's a, if there's something like uh, bass sounds good in the car, but I can't hear it on headphones. I think that's helpful for me because that helps me interpret, okay, well maybe the bass is too scooped and I need to put a little bit more mids back in it. Cause you know, on headphones on like little earbuds, you're not going to hear 40, 50 Hertz. You're not going to hear any of that in the car. You probably will. But if they say something like that, it at least gives me something to interpret right? Um, th more than just, I can't hear the bass. You know what I mean? It's like, because obviously I, like the drummer could hear the bass. I can hear the bass. Why can't you hear the bass? <laughs> you know? Well, and a lot of that can be fixed by the mixing engineer knowing that that happens on a regular basis. Right. And the mixing engineer needs to remember to himself listen to the songs in different environments. I agree, for that sure. The mixing engineer, after he's done with mix A, before he gets mix B notes, you need to make your own notes as a mixing engineer, your own mix notes before mix B starts. After listening to it in your car and in, head, in good headphones and in crappy headphones. Right. And in your nice monitors and in your crappy monitors. Right. Or, you know, some a lot of mixing engineers have two sets of monitors. Like I know you have Barefoots and Yamahas. Mm -hmm. So you will, is that true? You still have the Yamahas? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I still have the NS10s and then I have a little set, a little small set of speakers that are single driver. Yeah. Um, you know, four inch little right. tiny, not even that, like three inch little tiny drivers. And you have a monitor controller where you can switch between all the outputs. That right. way you can hear it in all three different environments and you can make some of those decisions during that time right. while you're mixing. Yeah. And that a lot of times avoids that from happening. It avoids the bass player wanting bass louder and the drummer wanting bass quieter and the guitar player saying the bass is the best it's ever sounded. Right. Right. And so I think that's a really important point to bring up is that it is still the mixer's job to make sure the mix translates, right? Like, correct. It, it, in all three mixing stages. Right, in, in all the stages. And, and it's important to remember that even though translation isn't the only goal, it's still important. Like, it's still really a 
big part of the mix process to make sure that the mix sounds good as many places as it possibly can. And that that is your responsibility. It's not the responsibility of mastering. I mean, no. sure, mastering will help that a little. But they do that on their own for the master. That's not what a lot of people think that's what mastering is. Right. Is, oh, it's making sure that it sounds the same in all listening environments. No, that's not what mastering is. Mastering is a completely separate thing that we would cover on a completely separate podcast. What we're talking about is mixing today and mixing notes. And that is part of the job for the mixing engineer and the producer and the people sending the notes. It's all three of their jobs to do that, to listen in all environments so that in every stage of the process, you know that it's going to sound great in every instance. Right. Yeah. And so it's not that expensive for anybody out there. All you got to go do is go buy, you know, a cheap set of computer speakers and I'm sure you have a car. So, you know, after you've made mix a go listen in the car, listen in the computer speakers while you're mixing it, listen in the computer speakers every now and then it doesn't have to be, you know, very long. Just no pop over and just see. You can also buy a great set of pretty flat headphones for around 50, 60, 70 bucks. Right. Yeah. You don't have to go and have like five different sets of good monitors, right? Like you can have one good set of monitors and then a bunch of just cheap stuff that you can just check as you want. If I can be really honest for a second, I don't mix things very often. If I do, I'm going to a studio that has the types of monitors that I would want to mix on. Like Kendall studio, the closet studio. He has that great pair of barefoots and I love mixing on those, but I don't mix very often. I usually defer that to guys like Kendall. What I have at my house, I don't even have my own studio space or office anymore. I do everything from home now is I have a pair of Tannoy studio monitors that are like the cheapest Tannoy studio monitors that you could buy at guitar center in 2009. They're not fancy. <laughs> they, they've got a four inch and then a little, you know, one inch tweeter and they've got a port at the bottom for low end and they're not expensive. I think they were $170 for the pair. And I think I got them cheaper than that on my, on like a discount or something. And then I use headphones to do almost everything. The monitors to me is my second reference. My first reference are my headphones because the majority of the time I listen to music on the headphones that I'm wearing right now. My AKG K44s are on my head almost the entire day. So this is how I listen to music while I'm working. Right. And then the other instance that I'm listening to music is in the car. So I'll check my headphones and the car. Those are my two main listening environments. And I, those are the two things that I always reference. Then when it comes time for mix notes, that's when I turn on my studio monitors and that's when I plug in my, my in-ears, my earbuds. Right. And those, that's the only time I do that to be honest, but I know how things are supposed to sound in my K44 headphones that cost me 50 bucks. And I know how things are supposed to sound in the speakers that I have in my car that came with my car for free. So anybody can do this. You don't have to have expensive stuff in order to send mix notes. You can have very practical things to send mix notes and still do a good job of it. I've been doing mix notes with these headphones for 10 years and I've done songs that have made the radio and sound awesome. So you don't have to do that. And it's important, like you said, to to use a system that you are familiar with. Absolutely. You know, like, Familiarity is the most important thing. Yeah, like if you listen to music in your car really often, then check your mix in the car. If you, if you listen, like for me, I generally listen to music 
out here in the studio on the barefoots, but I also listen in my house on a sort of home theater system. Right. So I'll check it in there and I'll check it in the car and I'll check it on headphones. Those are generally the three places that I'll check it. And um, now I don't listen to music on headphones very often. So that to me is sort of the outlier. Right. Um, but you and I are different. I'm, Everybody's different. Right. When I'm mixing, I'll listen to the barefoots and the Yamahas and my little tiny speakers. Right. Um, and that's, pretty telling like that will tell you a lot about what the things that you're going to get as mix notes you can avoid a, a way way ahead of the time you know like one of the big things is going to be hearing the bass in small speakers hearing the kick in small speakers um the kick is a little easier because it's got the click you know but um a bass can be really hard to hear in small speakers and the other big thing is vocal level like hearing vocal level on a tiny system um, and the other reason I think it's important to check on headphones is because of width. Like when you're in a room listening on speakers, the left and right kind of get smeared and you have this whole image and it's okay if something is hard left with no reverb, but to some people on headphones, that's really awkward. Um, doesn't always bother me. And in, in every mix instance, it's obviously, you know, it can be fine, but in some situations, like if a song starts with the guitar on the left, for some people, when they hear that in headphones, they're like, this sounds really awkward. Yep. I'm one of those people, to be honest. Yeah. And a lot of people don't like how that sounds when it's just like, because headphones will kind of like, you know, you're forcing the stereo image in sort of this like awkwardly wide way. Well, it's 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 a directional thing. Right. The speakers are pointed right at your eardrums rather than at your face. Right. They're not so pointing like, forward. They're pointing in. They're pointing in. It would be like having the left speaker right beside your left ear and the right speaker right. right beside your right ear. That's what headphones do. Yeah. But we still have to make sure that it sounds good in headphones because the majority of people listen to music on headphones nowadays and they're usually right. crappy little iPod headphones. Right. And I, I experienced this actually last week. I had a mix note that was, there was a section of the song where there was like a ping pong delay, you know, like left, right, left, right, left, right. And the drummer uh, sent me the mix notes and said, our vocalist thinks the, I think the vocal delay sounds great, but our vocalist thinks it sounds too loud in headphones. Now I asked the drummer, what were you listening on? He said, oh, I listened to my car. So what that tells me is that the delay was set too wide. It was set like hard left ping, hard right pong, <laughs> you know? And so on headphones, that sounded awkwardly wide, like super, super wide. But on the car, it probably sounded fine. On my speakers, it sounded fine. So rather than having the delay go from hard left to hard right, I I narrowed out the effect a little bit and made it like 50-50. So again, you might think by hearing that mix note, you might think, oh, the delay's too loud. By knowing what they listened on, you can then say, oh, it's not too loud, it's too wide. Right. And so that's an example of interpreting, you know, what they say and then trying to understand, okay, what they actually mean is, you know, and, and that can be really tricky. So I think that's another important reason why to tell your client or your artist or the person you're producing to not over explain their mix notes. Cause sometimes if you over explain them, then things like that can be lost in translation. Right. Whereas if they just say it simply, Hey, in headphones, this sounded too loud, but in my car, it sounded perfect. That rings a bell in your head. It clicks and you think, Oh, that just means it's too wide. Right. That has nothing to do with volume. 
But if you go into a long explanation of why it's too loud here and too quiet here and and too bright here and too dark here and all this stuff and explain your reasoning, then it gets all lost and jumbled in translation. That's a really good reason why you need to be simple with your mix notes. Right. I would say that would be our number four is don't needlessly explain every mix note. Keep it simple. Keep it clear. Instead, if you're unsure about something, just say like maybe turn the vocal up one dB. You know, you don't right. you don't have to be like 100% positive about it. And that way the and mixing engineer can call you and ask you what you mean or email you back or send edits on the notes and say, hey, let me know what you mean by this so I can know. And that's a little bit easier. Or like we said, if there's something that comes on a different system, you know, you should encourage your clients not to just be like, well, maybe it's nothing because it sounded fine in the car and you know, uh, maybe I'm just imagining things, you know, tell them like, Hey, it's okay. If you hear something differently on different systems, that's going to happen. Like definitely just mention it, but you don't have to go into this big explanation of like, well, I don't know. Maybe it's not too loud. It sounded fine here. And it's just tell me vocals too loud in the car sounds fine on headphones. That's all you got to say. Let's be honest. It's going to be so much more important to the artist than it is ever going to be to anybody else ever. Right. I, have listened to Radiohead since like the nineties. Right. And I recently listened to okay computer for the first time in like small head, like small iPod headphones. Cause when right. I usually listen to that record, it's on vinyl or it's in my nice headphones. It's in my car, but in the small iPod headphones, I noticed things that right. I did not have never noticed on songs that I've heard literally thousands of times. And I'm not exaggerating. I've listened to that record thousands of times and that's going to happen. And that's one thing you have to remind yourself is that it's okay. If something sounds a little bit different in headphones than it does in your car, than it does on your nice speakers that is supposed to happen. And how you can remind yourself that is by listening to your favorite music on all three of those listening environments a couple of days before you sit down and do your mix notes. Sure. Yeah. And just know that the big thing that clients are generally going to kick back on is if something is lost. Yes. Not if it's a little too bright, a little too dark, a little too, you know, they're going to be like, well, I can't hear that. Yep. You know what I mean? If they cannot hear the bass in headphones, that's a problem. And that's something the mixer needs to consciously address as they're mixing. Like, how does this mix translate to small speakers? I think that's probably... I would say headphones and small speakers is probably the most important. And then car would be number three. Because like these days, cars systems are getting a lot better. Yes, they are. And they're closer to our studio monitors. Yep. But like headphones and small like laptop speakers are still so wildly different. Like in so many ways. And like the little Bluetooth speakers that people listen to stuff on. Like all mono. The time. Yeah. Single Bluetooth Single speakers. driver mono. Man, they're so different than wildly different wildly different yeah so you got to be careful of that but definitely um number five in terms of asking the band for mix notes i would say one of the easiest ways is something that i would call the mixer man technique this is something he talked about in uh, i forget which which book but in one of his books he talked about this is just to tell the band the simple sort of prompt of part section up or down that's one of the simplest ways, like if they're confused, if they're not really sure, if they feel overwhelmed, if they're new to the process, you know, if they're not really familiar with mixing process, or maybe they've never really worked with a separate mixer, they've only worked with their engineer, and maybe, like for me, I generally mix alone, um, and I think that's, you know, 
that's just kind of, I prefer to mix alone. I don't like having people in the room, but other people are used to mixing in the room with their producer or whoever. I think the part section up or down is a pretty good, you know, basic template, you know, and if you want to go a little bit more advanced on that, it'd be like what you said with, you know, part section up or down, brighter or darker, wetter or drier. You know what I mean? Those are such simple words that are easy to explain to a client or an artist. Right. Part meaning guitar. Right. Section meaning chorus. Up or down, wetter or drier, wider. More left, more right, more center, whatever. Yeah. Very, very simple. And it and it really removes a lot of that worry and confusion about explaining and all that. Cause Definitely. they don't have to be like, Well, I can't really hear the vocal. It's like do you want it up? <laughs> Just yeah. tell me to turn it up. <laughs> yeah, it cuts out over explanation if you tell them that's how to give the notes. Is part right. section up or down? I totally agree with that. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Mixer Man is a great resource to use. So let's say you've gotten the mix notes, the band has sent you the mix notes, and it's time to go about interpreting them. So just in summary, I'm going to just kind of go down this list and uh, we're going to talk about these briefly. So the first thing, weed out the unnecessary stuff, especially if you see doubles or conflicting notes. Like if you see vocal up and then on another part, they say vocal down. Okay, cancel those out. Start start to weed out the unnecessary stuff. Um, it's kind of like word problems in math class, right? When you go and they give you a bunch of information and you need to focus in on the important pieces. So if they give you a paragraph mix note, read it, think about it, distill it down to what you need. Um, then after you've done that, I would say tackle the big things first. You know, if they say things like, overall, the snare is too loud. Okay, while that's a simple note, it's a big one. It's important. Like turning the snare down will affect the whole drum mix and the whole mix. Um, especially if they say something like, you know, I can't hear the vocal at all. Like that's a big note. <laughs> that's a really impro- like prominent note. So I would say tackle the important ones first, the big things first. Okay. Number three, if you don't understand what they mean by a certain note, Ask them to clarify. Don't just go for it. Just ask them to clarify, especially if it's something like super vague and possibly really important, like the drum sound isn't really what we want. It's like, okay, before I go any farther, I need to understand what that means because, you know, so make sure that you are indeed ready to do mix B. Like there's no notes that are um, potentially speed bumps in the process where you're like, oh crap, they said that the bass tone is completely wrong. That will affect my whole mix. So I have to figure out what they mean by that first before I start just hacking away at the mix and start making mix B. Number four, like I said, if you've got two conflicting notes or if you have notes that um, are different on different speakers, make sure you think about it and try to actually interpret what that means. If, Like we talked about with that vocal delay, if it sounds fine in headphones or it sounds awkward in headphones but fine in the car, maybe it's something to do with width. If it sounds great in the car but you can't hear it on headphones, it might have something to do with low end. You know, Think about what the car has that the headphones do not have or vice versa. And number five, um, many times mix notes can be confusing or not actually what they are. Meaning, if somebody says, I can't hear the bass, 
Maybe it's not as simple as turning up the bass. You might need to clear room for the bass by filtering out frequencies on guitars or keys, or maybe you need to compress the bass more. Maybe the bass needs to be brighter. It doesn't actually need more low end, right? So really try to interpret what they're saying in the context of what it is. And now, sure, we haven't mentioned this much on this show, but there are many times when I get mixed notes that I completely agree with. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like turn the vocal up and I'm like, yeah, seems a little quiet. <laughs> I mean, right. that, that's, yeah, that's something that, we haven't talked about. Because- almost every, almost every single time you get a mixed note, you agree with a good, with at least 20%. Sure. Oh yeah. I would say generally speaking, I don't disagree with my clients. I would say like, oh yeah, I could hear that. You know, and a lot of it is just a taste thing. Yeah. Preference. It's the ones that are confusing or vague or, the ones you disagree with that you really need to investigate before you just start hacking away at them. Totally. So things like vocal level, kick level, snare level, bass level, like the big, you know, the big four, as I would say, vocal, kick, snare, bass, you need to take those seriously. And you need to, you know, if they say something like can't hear the guitars or, uh, I, I find that a lot of mixed notes come back to the more me syndrome, you know, like everybody wants to hear themselves louder. <laughs> If that's the case, that generally doesn't mean turn up everybody. That's not going to do anything. Nope. That means you need to EQ some things. You need to pan some things. You need to, you know, give everybody a little bit more space. Um, so make sure you know what you're getting into before you really start going at it, because you might be in for a lot of work as opposed to, you know, it's not as simple as if you get the note, turn the bass up, turn the kick up, turn the snare up, turn the vocal up. Really what they're saying is the stuff on the sides is too loud. Right. Like kick, snare, vocal, bass are all dead center. Yep. So what they're probably saying is guitars are too loud. Yeah. (laughs) So that could be fixed very simply or very, very complicated. (laughs) You know, you could really complicate that. So try your best to think about them and distill them. And then if you need to modify them and type in your own notes into the document, do, do it right then from that process you make your mix b from that process you send it to them again you make your mix c and hopefully by that time you will have a really solid finished mix that you're happy with that they're happy with that translates on different systems and that doesn't leave anybody wishing they had a mix d that's good stuff man well everybody um thanks for tuning in to this episode jordan thank you for being here and talking about mixed notes my pleasure I know that it is not always the most enjoyable part of the process, but a really important part of the process. And um, No, but it's fun because you and I have talked about it a lot off of microphone, and it's nice to have this conversation on microphone and be able to think about it in this type of setting. And uh, it kind of reaffirms that what you and I talk about to each other on a regular basis when we're having some of these issues, right. we're correct because we sat down, we <laughs> thought about it, <laughs> and then we recorded right. a podcast we're... about it. <laughs> anyway, guys, as always, if you want to check out more about the podcast, you can go to recordingloungepodcast.com. You can check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash recordinglounge. And you can send me an email at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. And really quickly, I just wanted to plug uh, Jordan's podcast. Jordan, yes. you have a podcast. Tell us about it. I do. I started a podcast uh, not too long ago called Probably Unknown. Probably Unknown is a music podcast where me and a guest listen to some songs 
songs that we have picked, usually about three or four songs per person. It's about an hour of music, and there are songs that are probably unknown. We listen to them, we talk about them, but usually we're just listening to music and talking to each other and having a good time. Um, A lot of times it's just drinking beer and making fun of each other because we're friends and we listen to music while we're at it. But the reason why I started it is because I did not have a podcast or a radio show that I really enjoyed listening to that was multi-genre, but at the same time being songs that you weren't already hearing all the time on the radio or on Spotify playlist or Pandora. It's not the latest trending indie song. It's also songs that are good and not just listener subscriptions. There are some great podcasts out there that do great music and great music podcasts. Um, I just wanted one that was a little bit more specific and a little bit more fun. So you can go to probablyunknown.com. All of my podcasts are up there. It just started, so there's not a lot up there. Um, but most importantly, go to the Apple Podcast app or the Google Play Store or Stitcher or anywhere that you listen to podcasts and just subscribe to my podcast and listen to it if you want to. I think people will have a good time listening to it. It's just a fun music show. It's short and sweet. And uh, yeah, also I want to just plug my band, Slow Dreamer. Go to slowdreamer.com. If you guys like weird rock and roll music, <laughs> I think you'll enjoy that quite a bit. And uh, Kendall, man, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Guys, I will talk to you next time. Make sure to check out all that stuff on Jordan's, uh, for his podcast and for his band. And make sure to check out our website for more info. I will talk to you guys next time.